in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you all. Dear listeners, welcome back. You're listening to Breakfast Show on the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting from the biggest mosque, the Battle for Two Mosque. And dear listeners, I hope you had a pleasant uh, morning. I hope you're enjoying your breakfast. Um, as usual, m- m- my duty is that you also enjoy the show today while having you breakfast. And for that, dear listeners, um, our producers, they have prepared two very interesting segments for today's show. The first segment, dear listeners, is about the hijab. As you know, today is the World Hijab Day. So therefore, we will discuss the hijab. We will discuss the understanding of this dress code. <coughs> Sorry for that. And for that, we have three guests with us. We will have Hola Mariam from Germany. And we will have Dania Nasser from UK and we have one pre-recording with Anna Marie Lunesco all three of them are wearing hijab and they will give our ex- their experience why they choose to wear the hijab and what impact did the hijab have in this society and then after this first segment uh, we will jump to the second segment which is the refer- uh, about the um, Israel and Hamas crisis we see in the Middle East uh, the topic of the second segment is Rafa reaches breaking point, tragic toll of Israel strikes on displayed families. And we will have for that Professor Don Chetty and we will have lawyer Yusuf Aftab. So the listeners, as I said, I hope you're enjoying your breakfast or maybe you will enjoy your breakfast during the show. My 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 duty is that you also enjoy today's show. So I will try my best um, as usual. But before the listeners, we go to our first segment. We have a Twitter or slash X poll. Um, I'm not getting used to it, to the na- new name of Twitter. So the poll is, uh, what is the reason behind you wearing a hijab? Let us know, uh, all those female Muslims who are wearing the hijab. What is the reason you are wearing the hijab? Is it piety to please God, to show Muslim identity? modesty or is it required by family and if you think there's another reason as well you can leave your answer on the comment section or you can call in anytime the number is 0208-687-7878 or you can go as well no social dear listeners let me know your answer what is the reason you are wearing the hijab i would love to know your answer and also, what we usually do right straight in the morning is that before we come to our first segment, we go to the news. And I don't know if you have started reading the newspaper, yes, but um, most of the newspaper, you can if you open them or if you can see them, you will see the in the front pages, you will see uh, Nicola Sturgeon's face. Uh, she has been um, in the middle of everything according to uh, about the corona crisis. Few past few days, so we will discuss this as well. But before we go, there's one other point I want to uh, mention first, which is I I think I have mentioned many many times as well. And trust me, I'm I'm someone who will do everything that my children stay away from that, uh, especially in a young age. Maybe when they are mature and know what they're doing, then maybe they can use. I'm talking about social media. So what happened is that Mark Zuckerberg has apologized to families who say the children had been harmed by social media during a free free hearing in the USA Senate. 
So, Mark Zuckerberg, you know him. He's the one who runs Instagram and Facebook. He turned to them and said no one should go through what they had. And not only he, all the other bosses of TikTok, Snap, X, uh, slash, um, Twitter, were questioned for almost four hours by senators from both parties. Now, lawmakers wanted to know what they are doing to protect children online. And this is very important. That's why I'm saying that I believe that no children should have a mobile. I believe no children should use social media. I, mean, I myself um, had my first mobile when I was 16, 17, and that time there was no social media. Yes, I, I'm grown up in the society when we, you know, when we uh, don't have, we didn't have any mobile. I remember when we used to travel, we didn't have any navigation system as well. So these old days are gone. And now we're in this new time where, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not saying that they're not good things. Of course they're good things, but that's a problem. Children, they just don't know how to use these good things. And they are manipulated to use the bad things. And that's, this is what happened in the end. Then all these bosses of these social media pages have to apologize to families who have gone to tra- troubles because of their children. So what happened is that lawmakers wanted to know what they're doing to protect children online. Legislation is currently going through Congress, which aims to allow social media companies to account for material posted on their platforms. Wednesday's hearing was a rare opportunity for the U.S. senators to question tech bosses, Mark Zuckerberg, and TikTok CEO, CEO Shuzi Chu voluntarily agreed to testify, but heads of Snap, X, formerly Twitter, and messaging platform Discord initially refused and were sent government-issued supponents. Now, behind the five tech bosses sat families who said their children had self-harmed or killed themselves as a result of social media content. Uh, as you know, um, there are sometimes, you know, this is why I don't understand that um, social media is so everywhere. You know, the thing is, Parents, if you are listening right now, <clears throat> one thing I always say is social media is in your home. It is in your living room. It is in your kitchen. It is in your toilet. It is in the room of your children. It is in your car, in your buses, because you got so- your phone in your pocket. Children got the phone in the pocket as well. And with that, they got social media as well everywhere. And they're influenced with that. Dear parents, while you're sitting in the living room, Make sure your child is not using the phone because if he's using, he's not paying attention, he might be on social media. Make sure that you have control over his phone as well. Make sure that if he's in his room or her in his room in her room, that you have control over the mobile phone as well. And you should know what side they are visiting and on what social media platform they are. So while the hearing mostly focused on the protection of children from online sexual exploitation, the question read widely as the senators took advantage of having five powerful executives there under oath. TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance, CEO Mr. Chu was asked whether his company shared US users' data with the Chinese government, which he denied. US Senator Tom, Tom Cotton asked Mr. Chu, who is from Singapore, if he had ever belonged to the Chinese Communist Party. Senator... Senator, I'm a Singaporean. No, Mr. Chu replied. So Mr. Cotton then asked, have you ever been associated with Chinese Communist Party? The response of Mr. Chu was, no, Senator, again, I'm Singaporean. He added that as a father of three young children, he knew the issues on the discussion were horrific and a nightmare of every parent. He admitted his own children did not use TikTok. See, 
even the owner, the boss, the CEO of TikTok is saying that his children are not using TikTok because of the rules in Singapore which bar under 13s from creating accounts. But it was Mr. Zuckerberg's chief executive of Meta who came under the most scrutiny as he testified before Congress for an eighth time. At one point, Senator Ted Cruz asked Mr. Zuckerberg, what the hell were you thinking when he showed the tech boss an Instagram prompt that warns users that may that may be about to see child sexual abuse material, but asked if they would like to see the result anyway. Mr. Zuckerberg said, basic science behind that is often helpful to rather than just blocking it, to help direct them towards something that could be helpful. Also, he promised to, pers to personally look into it. Now, during another exchange with uh, Senator Josh Hawley, Mr. Zuckerberg was invited to apologize to the family sitting behind him. He stood up, turned to the audience and said, I'm sorry for everything you all, you have all gone through. It's terrible. No one should have got, go through the things that your family have suffered. So, dear listeners, as I said, I mean, this is a huge, huge thing. Social media, um, <clears throat> my honest opinion, you know, a child, until he reached the age of 18, 19, should not able, or should not be allowed to use social media at all. Um, there are so many harms, so many damages which can be everlasting for your children as well. I mean, it is true that because of short social media, children have been killed or they have died. And um, therefore, it is frustrating. Social media is killing people. Dear listeners, make sure if you are parents, if your children are still young, make sure that you should you know what pages or they are going which pages they are visiting and uh, they should know also um, what is happening in their life. Be a part of their life. Be part of their life. Um, make sure that you spend much time with them as well. Put your mobile away as well and tell them to do the same as well. Yes, just have the old times back where you're sitting together, where you're talking about different things. You're talking about your day as well. Are you playing games? This is, I mean, these are the golden times which you need to bring back now if you guys if you look on the newspaper headlines um, it is mostly, mostly about Clostergen um, so the Daily Telegraph says the former sub, sorry image sorry of Nicola Sturgeon wiping away tears features on civil front page after the former first minister of Scotland denied claims put to her at the COVID inquiry that her burning desire for independence drove her response to the pandemic the Guardian says Mr. Sturgeon admitted to failing to properly record key discussions about the outbreak after being pressed over claims some discussions were too centralised and secretive. Former Justice Minister Mike Freer has told the Daily Mail that he will quit the comments at the general election because of the campaign of death threat and intimidation of his pro-Israel youth. According to the Times, Home Secretary James Cleverly has ordered senior officers to present him with hard evidence that they are treating neighborhood policing as a priority as the Conservatives prepare to put a back-to-basics policy at the heart of their election campaign. Mr. Cleavy also features in Daily Express. As the paper says, his home office officials have identified more than 5,600 migrants who could be put on deportation flights to Rwanda. 
The Daily Telegraph says the former sub-postmaster who inspired a TV drama about the post office IT scandal is to reject what he called a cruel offer of combination. Alan Bates says the figure agreed by the government is only around a sixth of what he requested. Despite ministers promising full and fair compensation to all those affected, the government says it's happy to discuss the evidence with the legal advisor of an applicant if they feel they are owed more than they are offered. In other news, the Financial Times, Sinn Féin hails an historic shift as Stormont looks set to recovery. The paper says the UK government has published a plan to revive the Northern Ireland executive after DUP agreed to restore power sharing following two-year impasse earlier this week. The military reveals a man shot dead by the Met Police after breaking into home in South London armed with a crossbow was a convicted stalker who had been banned from entering the road where he was killed. The paper says Bryce Hudson, Hudson, 30 years old, was given a 16-week suspended sentence last July. He was shot on Tuesday morning after forcing his way into a home in Surrey or Quays. Thursday, the Mirror launches a campaign aimed at what it describes as a bid to stop domestic violence killers being jailed for a decade less than other murderers. Finally, the Daily Star claims pulling crafty sticky at work is good for people because they help reset and avoid burnout, according to careers experts. Claimed, claims Robbie Bryant, who is quoted in the tabloid. The paper says the comments come as research suggests UK's workers are pulling more sick days than at any point in the last 10 years. And... The Times says that Home Secretary James Clovery sets out a vision in Thursday Times to get back to core policing after heeding his first quarterly meeting on the National Policing Board. The paper says Clovery is demanding more police, police in the community be to restore trust. The Sun carries a sidebar highlighting victories for Manchester City and Liverpool as the race for the Premier League title heats up. The splash story centres on traitors and strictly dancing star Claudia Winkleman, who the tabloid claims is the subject of an ITV plot to poach the presenters from the BBC to front a new major Saturday night show. The paper says Claudia will be offered at least £500,000 to host shows on ITV as the channel tries to boost its number of female presenters. And US singer Jennifer Lopez talks to the Metro. But the paper leads with an update of the man shot dead by police on Tuesday after breaking into a home in South London armed with weapons, including a crossbow. The paper cites court documents which says Bryce Hodgson was a convicted stalker who was banned from entering the road where he was shot in Surrey Quays. An internal home office document seen by the Daily Express newspaper states 5,664 individuals are currently in scope of a potential inclusion for relocation to Rwanda. The paper says in its lead story, the tabloid also claims despite being defeated in the Supreme Court and facing a shutdown with the House of Lords, the government is laying the groundwork for the first flight to take off elsewhere. Queen Camilla is pictured at the top of the paper, remarking that her husband is doing well after his stint in hospital over the weekend. The listener, as you know, um, King Charles has been in the hospital because of an operation. It is good to know that he is doing well. Uh, this is also part of Islam that 
the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he has advised, advised us to do that. That if you meet um, a politic leader, a politician, a world leader, head of state, then you should honor him as well. And in the Holy Quran, if you read the Holy Quran, then it is also important that we should be loyal, not only with the country, but also with the head of the state. And of course, as a Muslim, uh, um, as um, uh, um, I pray for the good health of the king, um, and may Allah grant him quick recovery as well. Uh, and of course, as I said, um, we always had that belief that regardless of what religion, faith, the person is, if he is the leader of your country, if he is the head of the state, then of course um, you should be very loyal to him and you should obey him as well. And this is what Islam is saying, that if he is saying something which is not against the teachings of Islam, then of course you should obey him and you should follow him and should listen to him. And therefore, as I said, he was in hospital, he had an operation, we pray for him for his good health, may Allah give him a healthy and long life as well. So, dear listeners, um, coming to the post office scandal, uh, the BBC News is saying that former sub-postmaster Alan Bates, who led the campaign for justice in the post office horizon scandal, has said he will re reject an offer of compensation from the government. The government confirmed plans for full and fair compensation to sub-postmasters affected by the IT scandal in 2022. Alan Bates told the Daily Telegraph, the offer was offensive and cruel, and he added around a sixth of what he requested. Mr. Bates' two-decade fight inspired a recent ITV series which told the story of hundreds of postmasters who were wrongly persecuted after faulty computer software calculated money was missing from post office branches. The post office brought many of the cases to court itself, and between 1999 in 2015, it persecuted 700 people, an average of one person a week. In 2017, a group of 555 sub-postmasters took legal action against the post office and two years later it agreed to pay them 58 million in compensation, but much of the money was swallowed up by legal fees. Mr. Bates, who took over a post office counter in Londondo, North Wales, in 1998 was among more than 500 people who received an average of about £20,000 after the High Court ruling in 2019, although the campaigners won the right to have their cases reconsidered only 95 convictions had been overturned. The government has promised to quash the convictions and pay compensation. Mr. Bates said an offer had been made by this government on Wednesday. It came 111 days after his claim, prepared with the help of forensic accountants engaged by his lawyers, had been submitted. Mr. Bates, said, Mr. Bates said, full and fair might be His Majesty's government interpretation, but in reality, the offer is grossly offensive and after all this time, yes, cruel. I will absolutely be turning this offer for financial redress down. It's just a terrible way to treat human beings. And I have heard from several sub-postmasters who have received similar disclosure offers while others are still waiting. Now, previously the government said it would swiftly uh, and compensate those affected. 
Victims will be able to sign a form to say they are innocent in order to have their conviction overturned and claim compensation. A government spokesman said, if any applicant to the GLO group litigation order scheme feels that they are owed more than is being offered, we are happy to discuss the evidence with their legal advisor. If you can't agree, decisions will be made by an independent panel that includes legal and accountancy experts who ensure fair address based on the evidence. The listeners, these are the news of today. Um, if you haven't read the paper, um, you can do so. I just brought a few uh, news articles in front of you. Um, we're going to go for a short break. And after the listeners, we will start with our first segment, which, which is about the World Hijab Day. And we will discuss the whale, the hijab as well why it is so important in Islam for us. And you will be surprised, dear listeners, the hijab is not only for women, but it's also for men. And with that, we will have also our first guest, Khola uh, Miriam, from Germany. So, my uh, dear listeners, um, do me a favor, stay tuned with the Voice of Islam Radio, and don't go anywhere. We say to MD ladies that they should observe Parda. And I also advise this to our women, and tell them to protect their modesty. However, in the Holy Quran, even before Allah has instructed women to observe Parda, He has instructed believing men to lower their gazes and to keep their hearts and minds free from lustful thoughts or intentions. This is why Allah the Almighty has very clearly stated in chapter 24, verse 31, that Say to the believing men that they restrain their looks and guard their private parts that is purer for them. Surely, Allah is well aware of what they do. Whilst men have not been instructed to physically do parda in the way that women have, the Quran has made it clear that they should purify their eyes and this means that they should not look at women in a lustful way and that they keep their minds pure and free from all forms of potential temptation. This is the parda required of men, and it is the means of protecting society from impurity, indecency, and danger. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to Breakfast Show on the Voice of Radio. Dear listeners, as promised, we will discuss today about the hijab because today is the World Hijab Day. But, dear listeners, I also want to know from you, those who are wearing the hijab, those female Muslims who are wearing the hijab, the reason behind that. 
why are you wearing the hijab what is the reason and how do you feel wearing the hijab as well uh, let me know your answer you can call in any time 0208-687-7878 is the number or you can go on our social at voice islam uk on twitter x slash x we have a poll what is the reason behind you wearing a hijab piety to please god to show muslim identity modesty or is it required by family members? Let me know your answer. You can go on our contact uh, no, comments uh, section as well. Meanwhile, what I'm going to do is, uh, dear listeners, Bolt Hijab Day. Uh, it's a huge thing, to be honest, because hijab is something which is considered in this society as, let's say, an uh, awful thing. People are, what I think, people are sometimes scared to see someone with the hijab. Um, before we come to the world hijab, they want to talk to someone who's wearing the hijab. Let's her her opinion. We have with us the listeners uh, from Germany. Our first guest it is Hola Mariam Hipsch, uh, who was born in 1980 in Frankfurt am Main, and she has published journalist, author. She is the published journalist, author, and spoke uh, spoken word artist. She holds lectures and gives public speeches about Islam at university and for the public. She accomplished a master from the Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz in journalism, psychology, and German studies. Dear listeners, uh, she is also the daughter of the late Hadayatullah Hipsch, uh, a convert, uh, German convert to Islam Ahmadiyyad, a very famous person, also and a big inspiration for the young people. Um, with that, I want to invite Khola Mariam Hipsch. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the Breakfast Show. Wa alaikum salam wa for having me. Khola, um, as I said, you are one who's wearing the hijab and today we are basically, let's say, celebrating the World Hijab Day. It's a huge thing, I believe, because as I said before, it is, in this society, it is, the hijab is considered as something very low. And yet you are the one, one of those who are wearing the hijab in the society. I just want to know your um, feelings, uh, your experience when you wear the hijab and when people looked at you, how did you feel? In the beginning yeah you know when I started when I began wearing the hijab I was a teenager and at that time I had some concerns <laughs> because of the prejudice you mentioned I thought I would lose all my friends and I was afraid of being excluded because of the hijab um, however the question which I uh, you know had at that time which I think it's important um, mm. I, uh, I told myself friends who would abandon me over superficialities, over prejudices. Mm -hmm. What is what is more more important, the friends, uh, such friends, or the friendship with the Almighty, who can do anything He wishes? Exactly. exactly. So I thought uh, about a verse from the Holy Quran, which is very beautiful in this context. Um, it's uh, is Allah Taala not sufficient for His servant? You know, unless mm -hmm. Allah mm -hmm. And when you realize that that Allah Taala and the relationship with Him are the top priority, and the connection with Him is more important than anything else you understand that the fear of other people, of their reactions, they should not dictate your actions, but rather the fear of losing the love of Allah Ta'ala. And in that sense, I think wearing the hijab can strengthen you. I mean, this is so beautiful. We just said that um, the love of God, the Almighty, you're doing so because you lose your friends who are basically just don't want you, but you have another friend who's Allah doing everything for you. No, Khala, we have seen you many times on the television as well. Yes, um, those who know German, they know that you have spoken about Islam. Uh, you have given like basically advices from the Islamic perspective about different um, topics. Um, you were wearing the hijab over there in the studio uh, when you were called in different shows as well. Um, 
I know one thing you said, the strength you get is from Allah as well. Um, it's very brave as well. Um, but just for, you know, um, I just want to know that, um, is there something else as well where you take the strength to go out every day to your job with the hijab uh, to know that even though people will look at you, but where do you take the bravery to stand even in front of men and talking about Islam wearing the hijab? You know, from my experience, of course, uh, in the short term, when you wear wearing the hijab, you face discrimination, you uh, have some problems and obstacles in your life. But um, that only it's only a short-term thing. In the long run, mm. Allah Ta'ala does not abandon the believer. Mm. And, and things fall into place in unexpected ways. And with Allah Ta'ala's help, you know, you can be very successful. You can overcome some obstacles. And there are only uh, minor exams during your spiritual journey. They are not <laughs> of great concern. So when you have this mindset, when you have this strong belief that Allah Ta'ala is your friend, he is on your, at your side, and he will always protect you from any harm, um, then you... Con, uh, con, you know, you concentrate on your dhikr, on your on your remembrance of Allah Ta'ala, on your prayers, and that is a, a weapon and a strength. Mm. And there's no comparison to it. It's uh, something which makes you um, in, strong from you, the inside. And um, yeah, I think that's that's the key for everyone who wants to go on a spiritual journey to have this this kind of mindset and be prepared. I mean, you're talking about spiritual journey. I know your father was a spiritual person. And when, while I was listening to you, you were talking about God. It's the same like your father used to talk about God as well. How much did your father encourage you to wear the hijab? Oh, not at all. You know, it was not a topic at all at that okay. time. Mm -hmm. my, my father was very sensitive in that matter. And um, he was very aware of uh, the fact that it should be my decision. It should be something, you know, It's the motivation to wear the hijab must be that you want to strengthen your uh, relationship with Allah Ta'ala and not some pressure from Uh, from your parents or your community mm. or whatever it should be. So he never said um, or, or, or demanded me to wear the hijab. But um, one day I decided to do it. And then he was very pleased and he was, you know, very, he appreciated it. Um, but there was no pressure at all in, in this regard. And you said like the hijab helps you to increase in spirituality, right? Uh, I mean, uh, there are, I mean, there are Muslim women who are not wearing the hijab. Um, Is it like because they are much more uh, linked with the worldly world as should as it should be with the uh, religious world? You know, I cannot judge about the inner intention mm. of other uh, persons, so we don't know that. But of course, I think what plays a role, because many women, they like to wear the hijab, but mm. they're afraid of reactions of others. So there is a fear of, of other people. And this fear seems to be greater than the fear of Allah Ta'ala. That's, you know, the wrong <laughs> priority, I think. But um, sometimes, you know, other uh, motivations also play a role. So uh, we cannot judge them. Um, but we can encourage them that when you go on this path and when you sacrifice a little bit of your comfort zone to uh, reach Aladala's, you know, pleasure, and um, th then things will happen, which which are really uh, it's so beautiful to see that little little miracles in your um, mm. in all day life happening, and that's worth it to to try to go this path. Well, well, Hola, you know, one thing also I just wanted to know from you is because uh, you have brought up in this Western society, yes. The, the whale has been a part, a long part of the Western society. We know that Mother Mary used to wear the hijab, uh, the whale, right? Or let's say the hijab. And yeah, we, we know exactly. that that um, even, you know, in the Western society, let's go like, let's go 60 years back. 
people still uh, women still used to wear the hijab now um we see the nuns they are still wearing the hijab as well but if it comes to a muslim lady if she wears the hijab then it's considered as something different what is the reason for that i don't understand that you know i think one main um, role is as of um, especially for the boomer generation the generation who witnessed um the so-called islamic revolution in iran in 1979 okay. for them it's a path um, you know it's a part of political islam or it's a political symbol um, it's something which was used to oppress women and it's very important um, to explain them that the political misuse the political instrumentalization of a piece of cloth um, it's not the same thing, uh, um, and it has to be. It must be differentiated between this misuse and the spiritual reasons for wearing a hijab. So when you explain the people, you know, um, uh, hijab uh, has been worn for centuries by religious women of all monotheistic religions out of uh, love for God and as expression of modesty and humility, and that's something completely uh, not to compare with the political misuse, then they, they start to get it. <laughs> and mm, yeah. and this is a very important, you know, um, because we have the situation in Iran nowadays as well. Mm, yeah. So um, we are, the Muslim mis, you know, misuse of, of uh, the commands of Allah Ta'ala and the misinterpretation of the Holy Quran, there are reasons also for these misconceptions about hijab. And the... Um, uh, the root cause is that Muslim, the Muslim Ummah hasn't accepted the Imam of the time, you know, exactly. the promised Messiah. But you know, you, you're talking about Iran, you're talking about the misconception showed by the Muslims, these Muslims called, let's say, this Mullah. Okay, let's see, they're showing the hijab, they're showing the hijab as oppression, it's good food for the media. Now the media in the Western society will show, listen, this is hijab, it's very dangerous for a Muslim woman, now we should ban it, we should take the free uh, we should uh, fight for the freedom of the muslim woman. this is what they mostly say now for example me okay let's see me i'm let uh, i'm influenced by the media and i see you in the street i'm coming to you should i like what should my response should i not speaking to you first instead of listening to the media well i you know from a muslim perspective i always would stress out the fact or point out that um the Holy Quran does not prescribe any secular punishment for adhering uh, to the for not adhering to the hijab mm -hmm. command. So that's something um, the mullahs made up themselves, and it's not the Islamic teaching. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to make it clear that uh, the, this, what is happening in some states and so, so-called so Islamic states is not you know if, what if Islam you, teaches. If you can explain us, what is the actually Islamic teaching of the hijab? For, for who is the hijab? Is it only for women, or is it also for us, for men? Of course, it's for uh, also for men. You know, the for men are um, mm. the first uh, who is addressed in the Holy Quran is uh, men are addressed um, to you know lower their gazes and to uh, treat uh, women respectfully. Okay, so basically, and then the second, yeah. First of all, uh, dear listeners, the men are told to lower their gaze. So basically, when it's come to the hijab, we men are basically the first one who are addressed. Okay, good. Carry on. Yeah, exactly. And then you know, it's only uh, it's a kind of. Um, not only for the protection of women, but also it's uh, it's a wider concept. It's not only about clothing. It's also you know when I usually when I talk with feminists, um, they are very um, familiar with the concept of safe spaces for mm -hmm. women, mm -hmm. and they realize because of the Me Too movement of sexism mm -hmm. overall in the pop culture and the politics and so on, they 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 realize uh, the you know that we need some kind of safe spaces for women, and burda and hijab is nothing else than that. It's, it's an area where women can, you know, flourish, where there's no mansplaining, where there are no, um, yeah, where there's no no pressure uh, from men, and um, it's uh, basically something you can 
a call a, a feminist um, approach for uh, you know for women to develop in a way they wish to and uh, you know the thing is that it's very beautiful what you just said and it's very important because i will come to the first point that you said that it's for men because mostly all these politicians who are making the decision decision that hijab here in the western society let's talk about the western society let's talk about france for example they have yeah. banned the hijab right do you think they ever have asked a muslim woman who's wearing the hijab so uh what the reason for why you wearing the hijab shouldn't they first ask you guys the reason for wearing the hijab and then should make a decision yeah exactly and uh, we even know that there were many demonstrations uh, with muslim women and they were demonstrating against the hijab ban so it's clear that <laughs> muslim women they don't want to uh, have this kind of laws and in india it's the same yeah. there are also hijab bans um and you know they they use um words like uh, neutrality or secularism to cover up that uh, the baseline is uh, uh, racism it's nothing else than that when you have this kind of bans and it's a political game um and uh, what what we should try to you know explain is that no government should dictate to women whether they should wear or remove the hijab and women must have the right to decide for themselves that's uh, the whole point i mean no man should dictate any woman what to wear or not what not what to wear yeah exactly yeah and uh, exactly. today we are um we have the world hijab day um i mean i believe it is a good step because uh, especially in the western society as i said people people just don't want to see someone in the hijab most mostly not all of them but mostly do you think the world hijab day is helpful to um bring new like just to bring the truth about the hijab to the people well, it could be but to be honest i'm not really sure if it if that's the case uh, from mm. my observation in in the world hijab day doesn't play a big role in germany okay. and the problem is that the current debate you know in iran is overshadowing um this uh, uh world hijab day and therefore um media decides to not point out the world hijab day but um if the situation changes the political situation there changes then it could be a day where women are who are wearing the hijab where they are and can you know share their expressions and that could be a good thing you know, to fight against and combat against um, misconceptions about the hijab what would advice would you give to the iranian government Uh, uh, sorry can you repeat that what advice would you give to the Iran- Iranian government well just stick to the uh, teachings of the holy quran and um just uh, follow what what's written uh, there and there is no you know there's no mm. punishment mentioned no punishment. but um what what is the root cause or the root motivation to wear the hijab um, should be the love of allah taala and mm. you cannot force other people to have love for someone else or love for the creator that's something which is um you know coming from within and uh, the government should restrain from pushing people in this direction but Not should, um, you know create circumstances where they can uh, learn from themselves how to be, be a good muslim yeah. uh, and uh hola you talked about the love for god that this is one reason you are wearing the hijab uh, i really like that and but there are still young women let's say uh, young girls who especially here in the western world um might be afraid of wearing the hijab what advice would you give to those young uh, girls living in the western society who are just don't know if they should wear the hijab or not and they should ask themselves who has more power and whose love and loyalty is 
is deepen, more deepen than, you know, the love of Allah Ta'ala. Mm -hmm. There's no friendship in this world uh, which can be compared with um, the beautiful experience you can have when you have a relationship with Allah Ta'ala. So they should just try to go this path and then they will experience themselves uh, how uh, beautiful it is to to have this uh, treasure in, in your life. And uh, because you were in the hijab, it never like hindered you to go outside and to do your work, right? You I mean the no, it, it's the other way around, I would say, because you know, because I'm wearing the hijab, I I I overcame my inferiority complexes because I learned, you know, to to um, stand for my um, values at a very uh, young age, and that um, made me really strong. And it was something empowering to wear the hijab. And I think it's the other way around. When you start wearing the hijab, you build a self-confidence because you're not afraid of um, the, you know of other people, but only of losing the love of Allah Ta'ala and that makes that gives you an inner strength I mean this is so important so beautiful that you have mentioned this as well it's a love for God we are doing these things it truly is I mean uh, uh, after listening to you I can say like I know that you have already integrated and the great thing is that you have integrated with the hijab which shows that Muslim especially Muslim women can integrate in the Western society as well with the hijab but with, uh, it isn't this is a po uh, it's still possible to do that um, uh, it was really nice uh, uh, talking to you as well um, I really enjoyed the interview um, I wish you all the best for the future as well and hopefully one day we can have you again in a breakfast show thank you for joining so much thank you for having me thank you Listen, you just listened to Khola Mariam Hipsch from Germany. Um, she's also, um, what I didn't mention, is that her journalistic work has been published by nationwide papers like Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, Frankfurter Rundschau, Die Welt, Die Zeit, to name a few. Uh, also, if you go on YouTube, if you could type her name, you can see that she has been in different um, talk shows as well in Germany, where he where she discussed basically about different uh, Islamic, uh, from the Islamic perspective about different topics as well. Uh, it is great to see, and as she said in the end, dear listeners, for the love of God, if you know there's someone so powerful, just do it for him then in the end. If you know that he is your friend, then do it for him because in the end, if you have someone so powerful who can, give, uh, who can protect you, give, can give you everything, you already do everything for him as well. And dear listeners, um, coming now uh, to the world hijab day uh, I mean it is a good uh, um, uh, go for that as well um, hopefully um, it will be recognized uh, wider as well the world hijab day um, uh, was um, basically established by Nazma Khan who is uh, a Bangladeshi American who migrated from Bangladesh to America and the reason she did this is because um, she just wanted to um, remove the misconception about the hijab yes she wanted to, to people to know about the hijab as well the reason why Muslim women wear the hijab the real commandment of the hijab which in the first point is for men as Khola just mentioned that as well in the beginning and because uh, she also wanted to to promote the hijab as well in the first society. This is, this is so important um, uh, to know the exact reason why the hijab, why the commandment of the hijab came. We know that Mother Mary used to wear the hijab as well. Uh, and we know that a lot of Muslim women are following her role model as well. So you can see that hijab is basically also connecting us with other religions as well because Mother Mary is someone who's um, not only respected in Islam but also in, the, in Christianity and dear Christian listeners Mother Mary 
is mentioned many, many times in the Holy Quran. A whole chapter is named after her. And whenever she was mentioned, she was mentioned as a righteous person. Yes, someone who was very close to God. And she was, we were told to take care of one of our role model. So one reason the women are wearing the hijab is because of that. The second reason is because uh, in the time of Talib Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, there was a very sad incident. A uh, Muslim woman was exposed naked by a Jew. And uh, not to, you know, that's the point. Someone needs to teach the man how to respect a woman. Yes, not to see a woman uh, as uh, something, um, uh, uh, as an object, but as a human being. So the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, came with the idea, or let's say God commanded him, yes, to tell you, the ladies, your wives, to cover themselves up. To cover themselves up, so the man, if a man sees a woman with the hijab as well, should know that that lady wants to show herself, wants to present herself as a human being, and we should respect her. So the lady, basically, is teaching the man in the society how to behave. So this is one point as well, which also forgot, is that the hijab has this value as well. Dear listeners, um, we will go now to someone else, uh, to our next caller, or next guest, sorry. Her name is Dania Nasser, who is a member of the Women Actually Organization. And she's currently a full-time student at Kingston University studying forensic psychology and criminology. And she volunteers for many activities within the community. One of her current roles is outreach coordinator for a branch of the Ahmadi Muslim Women Association. Dania, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you. Uh, welcome to the breakfast show. Waalaikumsalam. Thank you, Jazakallah. Danya, um, I, I just found out that you are um, wearing the hijab, you're studying as well. Uh, what is the concept of the veil in Islam, of the hijab? So, the Islamic veil is seen by many people. Um, Substation. Um, it's, you know, it's an icon of faith which is um, perceived as misogynist and sexist. But we're often, you know, as women, presented with the idea that Muslim women are considered unequal to men in Islam and that they're oppressed, living in subordination to men um, with very little individual rights. However, um, the veil has actually, you know, a big role. So I would love to quote um, Hazrat Mizam Mastur Ahmed, um, our head of the world, the head of the worldwide Indian Muslim community. And he said, it is often alleged that Barda, Islamic code of modesty, takes away women's rights. However, we know that that is not the case. And the truth is that Barda and Hijab actually establish the true dignity, independence, and freedom of women. Hijab does not give women physical security, but is also a means of giving them spiritual security and purity of heart. So that, that kind of tells you, you know, Islamic will is not something that is forced upon us. It's rather something that the religion has taught us as a means of safeguarding ourselves from social malice. It's a commandment um, of Allah to observe modesty, and the Holy Quran has made it very clear that modesty and veiling are a distinguishing feature Muslim, um, and Muslim women, for Muslim women so that they would be treated respectfully. So it's more of a sign of respect and to avoid those sort of the skills of society, basically, um, in my opinion. And uh, um, uh, you are an outreach coordinator as well. Um, 
someone who is going out to pr promote Islam as well and on a West society, let's say in this way. Now we have the World Hijab Day. Um, do you have anything planned to celebrate this day? Yes, so I've planned to put up an exhibition um, this week um, at one of our libraries, our local libraries, um, and we'll be putting up some leaflets and posters which, which signify what um, the hijab is. And um, in terms of internally, we have got, I've asked my um, the young girls in our, as part of, who are part of our branch to write poems on their hijabs. So then we obviously, you know, celebrating it like us are doing these little things. Um, and it's just, you know, it's like a big celebration at the end of the day um, for us because, um, you know, we're all, we all wear the hijab. We, you know, it's never something that has come in the way of um, our studies, our work or anything. So for us, you know, it's, it's a nice, nice day to celebrate this. So yeah, definitely. And I've, I know some, um, neighboring branch they've got coffee mornings arranged mm -hmm. um and so you know, they've invited um other guests who will actually be wearing the hijab for the day um it, it's not muslim but they they're sort of very excited to just try on the hijab for mm -hmm. a day so, so yeah those kind of things to just to celebrate it and um uh I know like modesty is something which is described in Islam as well, not for only for women but also for men. So modesty is very important. Is modesty restricted to the hijab or does it go beyond that? Um, modesty definitely goes uh, beyond that and there's a very common mistake more often than you can imagine that. People say it's just about wearing the hijab and it's kind of annoying, you know, it gets on my nerves because it's not. Yeah. Um, it's more about, you know, I mean, I quote um, a verse, the Holy Quran, and I'll read the entirety of it, and I think that will actually answer the question better than I can. Um, and along to chapter 33, verse 36, Surely men who submit themselves to God, and women who submit themselves to Him, and believing women, and obedient men and obedient women, and truthful men and truthful women, and men who are steadfast in their faith, and women who are steadfast in their faith, and men who are humble, and women who are humble, and and men who fast, and women who fast, men who guard their chastity, and women who guard their chastity, and men who remember Allah much, and women who remember Him, Allah has prepared all of them forgiveness and a great reward. But it's basically more than just veiling, you know, uh, it's it's both for men and women, and it's more about, you know, pleasing Allah. So it's about cover, not just about covering your head. It's more about wearing modest clothes. It's the yeah. way you speak. It's the way you, you, you know, you present yourself, the way you treat others even. Um, you know, so that I think that all falls under modesty, and it's not just about attire, and it's very wrong to think that it's, it's just about that. It's about character and behavior. Amazing. Um, Danya, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining uh, the Breakfast Show. Um, I wish you also for all the best for the future. And uh, yes, good luck for your studies as well. And hopefully one day we can have you again on the Breakfast Show. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Jazakallah. Okay. So, dear listeners, we had two guests. We had Kola Mariam Hipsh. The reason she's wearing the hijab is because of the love of God. And we have Danya Nasser. 
and she's waiting the hijab because of modesty. Now let me know you answer. What is the reason you are wearing the hijab? You can call him anytime. The number is 0208-687-7878. Or you can go on our socials at Voice of Islam UK and let us know there you answer. Are you wearing the hijab because you, to please God, as we call him, Mariam Hibsh is doing it, to show Muslim identity or modesty, as Dani Nasser is doing it, or is it required by your family members? And also, um, I would wish to like to know uh, what does hijab mean for both man and woman. So let me know your answer, dear listeners. Um, we have reached the hour, which means which we will go for a short break. But after the short break, we will be back, uh, continuing with the World Hijab Day, especially about the hijab, what hijab means for us, and we will discuss also from another perspective that what is it prescribed for man to wear or to. Why uh, to use the hijab? So stay tuned with the Voice of Islam Radio, and um, also um, if you want to call in, the number is 0208-687-7878 and uh, let me know your answer as well. I wish, love to see you heard your answer. Uh, it is very important that we discuss this point. As as I said, hijab is considered as something wrong, which is totally wrong. Uh, Therefore, stay tuned with the Voice of Sam Radio. Uh, we will wake up for a short break, and after the break, we will continue with the topic, and we have also pre-recorded prepared for you. So don't go anywhere. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Dear listeners, welcome back. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Voice of Islam Radio. Dear listeners, previously on this show, we were talking about the hijab, uh, and uh, we discussed and we found out that the hijab is not only for women, it is also for men and first of all the first people ordered to do the hijab or or were men and uh, I just got the verse in front of me uh, it is uh, from chapter 24 verse 31 it is said say to the believing man that they restrain their eyes and guard their private parts that is prayer for them surely Allah is well aware of what they do so you see that Men were instructed to lower their gaze first in Holy Quran uh, and to show modesty as well or to adapt modesty in their society, in their life as well. Uh, so, you, so important to know that it is not only for women, it is basically first of all for men to uh, adopt these uh, habits as well, to lower the gaze, to be modest as well. And um, uh, as I said as well, um, one of the reasons it was also that women can teach men how to behave as a gentleman as well and how to consider a woman as a human being as well and there we go in the same chapter the next next verse as Allah says and say to the believing woman that they restrain their eyes and guard their private parts and that they disclose not their natural and artificial beauty except what which is apparent thereof and that they draw their head coverings over their bosoms the verse goes on to list cl uh, close relative from whom observing hijab is not necessary. So, there's also one question. Uh, does the Muslim woman also wear the hijab at, house, at, the, at her house in front of her husband, children? No, she is not. And trust me, she is not. My, my wife, she's wearing the hijab as well outside, but not inside in the house, and not in front of me. So, um, this I mean, this is one misconception. Um, hopefully, it's now being removed as well. Um, dear listeners, uh, I want to know from you as well. 
uh, the reason you were in hijab and what hijab means for you and what hijab means for you and men as well. Uh, let me know your answer. The number is 0208-687-7878 or you go on our socials at Voice Islam. You can let us know there your answer. Um, everything is allowed. I'll be happy to know your answer as well. Um, and while you are writing down the number or going on our socials, um, I will play a pre-recording interview as well with Anna Marie Lunesco. And after the pre-recording, uh, we'll be back and discussing the point as well about the hijab and uh, um, what kinds of uh, hijab basically exist. So stay tuned with the voice of some radio and do enjoy the pre-recording. Dear listeners, um, today I have uh, Dr. Anne Marie Lunesco with me, who is a junior doctor trained in the UK and the mother of two children. Dr. Anne-Marie also contributes to UK Ahmadiyya Muslim Association Auditor Department to try to dispel misconceptions about Islam and Muslim women. Dr. Anne-Marie, Assalamualaikum wabarakatuh and welcome to the breakfast show. Thank you for having me. Walaikum salam. Um, Dr. Anne-Marie, um, there's this misconception about the hijab. I mean, it's one of the most highly discussed piece of clothes and people are... Um, I mean, there are a lot of misconceptions even portrayed in the media as well. Uh, even a few countries have banned the hijab as well. No? Um, what are those misconceptions and stereotypes and how can we challenge them? I think the most common is that uh, Muslim women who wear the hijab are voiceless and they're oppressed and uneducated. And so they need, um, you know, they need government officials essentially to try and free them from their, from their oppression. Um, and that they, Muslim women are forced to wear a garment, like this hijab garment, against their own free will and have little in the way of rights in Islam that helps ensure their happiness and prosperity. And so, um, yeah, I think those are the main misconceptions that wearing the hijab is a very visible representation of Islam in the wide, wider society. So, um, yeah, so, so I think that's probably... That's probably the, the biggest misconception. I think if we're going to try and correct it and challenge it, I think women who are um, who are educated and confident and successful who wear the hijab, <clears throat> I think this is automatically going to go against um, these misconceptions that I've just mentioned. You know, before you even open your mouth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes this can be challenging, though, um, for ethnic minority women who might have. Um, feelings of inferiority complexes and and things like that, especially if they're immigrants. But um, but I think it's being confident wearing the hijab is probably one of the biggest ways to challenge some of these misconceptions that um, that we've just mentioned. And I will challenge them. For example, we have now um, the World Hijab Day. Um, do you think like these kinds of events contribute to break those stereotypes and challenge? these um, uh, misconceptions? I think it, it can be helpful. I think it can help draw attention to Muslim women who are maybe more active and vocal <clears throat> in their support of the hijab. Um, so in the West, you know, the, the percentage of Muslims in the population is relatively low, depending on the country you look at. Um, apart from, you know, maybe if you look at the big cities, the percentage is bigger. But overall, you know, the population of Muslims in the West is between 5 and 10%, probably on average, not much more than that. And so it's harder for the general population to be in contact with women um, who might be confident to speak 
to speak out about the hijab. And so having a vocal and present Muslim women's group, essentially, like, um, you know, like Muslim women's groups in the World Hijab Day and things like that, it can help improve the awareness and improve contact with Muslim women who wear the hijab. But I think other events are, are helpful as well. Like there's there's certain events that people have tried in public that like try on a hijab or join mm. us for, for iftar and fasting. They're also very good at raising awareness and hopefully improve, you know, the public perception of Muslims in general um, in the public. Mm. And yet, like you just said, like in the public, when they try just to see how it is, you are someone like who is wearing the hijab. Um, mm -hmm. And only do why because you want to be recognized as a Muslim as well. I mean, um, I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of people who want to know experience uh, related to wearing the hijab and so uh, if you can give like some experiences and how it shaped your perspective and on modesty yeah i mean there's i think there's quite a few experiences i think some are some are um you know more relevant to share i think one that i think is positive or it's more of an amusing experience i guess was during my f foundation years as a junior doctor when I was w working on a ward. And um, there was a, a, an elderly lady that called out to me when I was walking past and she referred to me as a sister, as in, mm. as in a nun. And, uh, and she requested uh, some, like a, a pastor or a priest to come down and see her. And, uh, and it, was, it was endearing in a way because she, she was elderly and she, she obviously thought that I was a nun covering my head and um, mm. visiting patients on the ward. And I think it highlighted then to me that, you know, what we wear can be seen as a type of uniform. Um, and especially with Muslim women wearing the hijab, it's, it's a type of uniform when you go outside in a way. But there's mm. lots of crossover with other religious communities and the type of dress and the type of uniform they wear in, in a similar way to us. Um, so I think that highlighted that, you know, depending on the way you look, maybe depending on your skin color as well, and the way you wear your scarf, you might actually be be, be mistaken for something else, like a sister or a nun. Um, and so, yeah, so I thought that was a bit endearing. Um, but my positive, my experiences have been generally very positive, um, and and with the elderly population as well, they tend to like certain like styles of hijab or, or colors and patterns. I think it, it becomes a bit difficult with uh, Muslim women if they just, just wear black all the time. You know, black is a, is a sign of mm. the color of mourning in the UK and in the West in general. Mm. Um, mm. And so the experience isn't as good, I think. But yeah, it's just sort of bearing that in mind. But I think my, my, my experiences have generally been very positive. I think you're good to know that um, because like because as I said, this this is the society where people generally think, uh, okay, the hijab is not good and should not be worn by anyone. Now there are young Muslims outside and um, who will like who have integrated in the society and looking for a job as well, like you did. You are a junior doctor. There's someone who wants to be an, a lawyer or a doctor as well, or maybe a teacher. Now she wants to integrate in the society with the hijab as well. Um, what are the advices you can give to those uh, young Muslim women? I think, you know, making the decision to start wearing the hijab, for example, in society 
Um, it's not always a very easy one, um, particularly if you're in a school setting or a work setting that won't change for a long time. Um, then changing your your outward appearance in this way can bring about judgment and a lot of anxiety for girls and young women. But I would say that you you know you need to think carefully about your reasoning behind doing it because it's it's that reason that will ultimately establish your firm foundation um going forward especially when people start asking you questions as to why you're wearing it mm. um so yeah so you just got to think carefully before before that um and i think one small tip uh, is um so if if you're moving from for example school to college or college to university um st- making the decision to start wearing it during those times is is a useful time to think about because it makes the transition a lot easier because a lot of people won't know you when you've moved to your new setting and so you know it's obviously if that's not an option then you just want to start wearing it as soon as possible and there's not going to be much change of the people around you then any time is probably a good time but it, but I find that that making that transition with a new job or a new you know you know university or school that helps uh, make it easier for you. And also, I did mention this briefly earlier, but I think the choice of colors and patterns, you know, obviously it's a personal choice, but mm. it's something to bear in mind. You know, if you're worried about how other people will look at you or perceive you, then coming out one day all dressed in black with a black hijab and black outer garments, etc. cetera, mm. you know, it's, it's not going to be perceived as well as maybe wearing more neutral colors or having a nice patterned mm. floral scarf. And, you know, I didn't mention that the, where I work, a lot of the elderly people, they, I got lots of compliments, actually, which might surprise a lot of people. They will compliment me about my hijab and um, and that it looks very nice, etc. cetera. And, uh, and I think that's just because I've decided to wear more floral patterns, which people and patients like to see more than, you know, just a, a black scarf. So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't assume a negative reaction if you're going to start wearing it. Just be confident in the way you carry yourself, and that goes a long way, I would say. Oh, that's true. Um, Dr. Anne Marie, um, thank you for your time. Uh, it was good, uh, amazing listening to you as well and about your experiences and about the advice you gave. Um, I wish you all the best for the future, and hopefully one day we can have you again in the breakfast. Uh, break thank you for joining. Thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. Assalamualaikum. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back to the Breakfast Show on Voice of Islam Radio. You just listened to a pre-recording interview with Anna Marino Lesko. And dear listeners, we had three guests who talked about the hijab, wearing the hijab, the reason of that. Uh, one amazing thing uh, which will stay in my mind is for the love of God, we should do so. And um, I'm including myself as well because we also discussed that the first commandment of the job came down for, from Allah for men so that they should lower their gaze as well and then the women were told to do uh, to wear the hijab so basically if you understand these two points it's basically saying that first we should adopt modesty and the women they should help us to um, uh, to help us in do, do, doing that uh, while wearing the hijab so while we do uh, show, we lower our gaze, try to show modesty, they basically doing the same, but giving us also a lesson that we should uh, consider them as a human being as well, um, and that we should 
uh, always adapt by the same society. Dear listeners, um, we will wrap up now this segment. Um, I think one thing uh, which should be highlighted is the tolerance uh, in respect of for different beliefs and um, different uh, practices should be um, uh, should be there as well. There's a dire need for that as well in this society. Uh, if we do so, if we uh, if we try to have respect for people from different beliefs and for their uh, way of closing, then I think we won't have this arg- discussion about the hijab. We won't have this uh, the arguments or uh, let's say this misconception about the hijab as well. Um, the listeners, um, if if you were in the hijab. And if you want to contribute in the show, you can do so. The number is 0208-687-787. Or you can go on our social at Voice Islam. You can let me know your answer, the reason why for you wearing the hijab. I would love to know the answer as well. Um, but as I said, uh, we will wrap up this segment. Uh, we will go to the other segment because... Um, the other segment is also very important. It's much more about world peace, to be honest. Um... Uh, I just want to say in the end that um, respect and tolerance is important. Respect each other as well. Uh, and uh, yes, if you see a woman wearing the hijab, just ask her the reason why she's wearing the hijab, and you will be, maybe you will be surprised of uh, uh, of her answer. Now, coming to the second segment of today's show, which is basically about the Israel and Hamas war in the Middle East. Um, as I said, the listeners, I'm someone who's just praying for world peace and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's doing so. Um, so what, the gist of the story is that 10 people in a house sheltering two displaced families in Rafah were among 135 people killed in Israeli strikes over the past 24 hours, which is said by a Hamas uh, uh, spokesperson. Now, the southern Gaza city's population has swollen to well over a million people as displaced people from other parts of Gaza seek safety there. In a post on Telegram, Health Ministry spokesman Ashraf Al-Qudra said that infrastructure and medical services in Rafah could not handle the needs of an estimated 1.3 million displaced people. Rafah is reaching a breaking point uh, because of the influx of hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians over the families, he said. Listen, um, for me and for everyone, it is important that we understand the whole point of conflict. Uh, we understand what is wrong and what is right, but we also need to understand that if this conflict com- is not coming to an end, it will go. It will get will get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it will include much more uh, countries as well. So, um. It is very important that uh, we pray for the safety and for everyone, and also that we pray for world peace. Now, um, according uh, the said that 1.70 million in- internationally displaced people in Gaza as of January 22nd, many have been displaced numerous times, as families have been forced to relocate in search of safety. Now, due to the ongoing fighting and vacation orders, several households have relocated from the shelters where they were first registered. On January 23, the Israeli military issued additional evacuation orders via social media to Palestinians in many city blocks in Khan, Yunis. Now, that impact region spans about four square kilometers. There are around 88 thousand people in the region as well as an estimate 425 in, in, uh, internationally displaced people um, finding refuge in 24 schools and other institutions. It's a huge number and it's, I mean, 
how can I mean you, if you just imagine so many people living in such a small place it is impossible and it is I mean it must be very horrific and must be very awful for these people as well um, the listeners, um, as I said this segment uh, we will talk the segment we will discuss the segment with our guests as well and right now we have our first guest online Professor Don Chatty <coughs> who's Emeritus Professor in Anthropology and Forced Migration and former Director of the Refugee Studies Centre University of Oxford. She is also a follower of the British Academy. Her research interests include coping strategies and resilience of refugee youth, tribes and tribalism, nomadic pastoralism and conversation, gender and development, health, illness and culture. She has written many books including Children of Palestine, Experiencing Forced Migration in the Middle East, Professor Don Chetty, good morning. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning to you. Um, Professor, um, people have been displaced several times as well. Uh, this is, and, and I was just reading that in such a small pay, place, a lot of people are living there. How often must this be for these people to live in such a small place? Well, you have to try and uh, get your head around um, the actual numbers and the size of the territory. You know, Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip is about uh, 300 square kilometers. Now, that may not make a lot of sense, but if I said to you that London is 1,500 square kilometers, you realize the area is that is um, enclosing this almost 2.2 million people is one-fifth the size of Greater London. So you have 2.2 million people um, in this uh, really very small territory that's been exposed to more bombardment since October 7th than was released during World War II on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we know that um, 80% of the population has been displaced more than once. In other words, they've been either ordered to leave their homes by the Israeli or their their homes have been totally destroyed. Um, it's very hard now to get um, uh, accurate information because there are very, very few journalists actually yeah. reporting from Gaza. Uh, Al Jazeera is about the only one that has somebody reporting regularly. Uh, many of the others have actually been targeted and have since died uh, since October 7th. But we know that uh, more than 300 schools in this area have been destroyed, hospitals, clinics, mosques, churches, mm. factories, libraries, cultural centers, just, you know, and all of Gaza's universities have been blown up. They've been leveled. Um, so where where are people going? Most of them were ordered to move south, which they have, and they're all, um, those who have done that are living in, you know, under plastic shelter tents mm. is no place else. Uh, some have actually started going back to the north, where a recent report suggests that the, some of the civil, civil society um, functions of the police and security of uh, the, uh, the Hamas uh, government are still functioning. But it is, um, a, a, it is a, a situation that is hard to imagine in its awfulness. But are you saying that like a lot of people have been displaced, now they're moving back to the north. Now seeing everything, seeing the war, seeing um, leaving one place, leaving this other place as well, would not this leave lasting impact in their mind, especially in the uh, minds of the children? 
Well, of course it will. I mean, we already, even before October 7th, we already knew that many of the children of Gaza mm-hmm. um, had uh, experiences of, of trauma, of PTSD. They had uh, serious mental issues that needed to be dealt with. And this is now, uh, you know, it's just compounded. There are so many children that have lost one parent, if not both, that are orphaned. Um, the, 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 the mental toll on the population in the future is uh, immeasurable. But I mean, we're talking about the future, isn't it? We're talking about the children. Right now, I'm talking about the children, about the future. I mean, how can you build a society, even after the war, how can you uh, possibly think of a healthy society if the children have gone through this from a long, long, long time? You, talk, you said this, it happened before October the 7th. Yes, well, you know, again, a lot depends on uh, on how you view human life. You know, children, my work with um, uh, Palestinian uh, youth in the past mm-hmm. is that they are extremely resilient. And of course, okay. they, will always, they will always be uh, badly scarred by what happened, but they are resilient. Uh, many children now are looking after their younger siblings. Uh, they're trying to find ways of finding water, finding food for them. You know, they will they will rebuild if there is a possibility of rebuilding. But you have to remember also that Gaza is an open-air prison. Mm-hmm. You know, unlike other situations where there's warfare, there's no place for them to flee. They cannot leave Gaza. Um, and then, obviously, there are some who don't want to leave Gaza because they know if they leave, it'll be the same as what happened before. They'll never be allowed back. So they're trying to find ways of surviving on the edges of where there, where there isn't fighting, where there isn't shelling. Um, but uh, the the land is being so badly damaged. Even farmland is being destroyed. It's going to be a very long and expensive effort to to uh, create livelihoods once again in the future in Gaza. I mean, listening to you, it sounds like there isn't even not a possibility to live in Gaza anymore. Um, well, I think... Um, That's probably what the Israeli uh, military would like to see happen. They would like to see it impossible, you know, for Gaza to rebuild. Um, and uh, maybe there are some entrepreneurial uh, real estate developers mm-hmm. thinking of building, uh, you know, uh, resorts, uh, compounds along the Mediterranean. But uh, certainly the destruction of Gaza and the, the, the laying of mines and the munitions is going to make it very, very difficult to, to bring Gaza back to um, a, uh, a, a viable community. But that, that's obviously what the Palestinians want and are going to mm-hmm. work for, because there eventually has to be two, a two-state solution. You know, mm-hmm. Israel always... Uh, uses the UN General Assembly 181 as the justification for the state of Israel. But they forget that the UN General Assembly Resolution 181 uh, um, put forward a Jewish state side by side with an Arab state, and the Arab state hasn't come into being. So if they, they want to use UN resolutions as the basis for their existence, they have to recognize there has to be a Palestinian state as well. And I think the U.S. is beginning to see that, although they have uh, some major opposition from Netanyahu, but it, I think it will come about because... Um, the rest of the Arab world is also supporting that the time has come. We have to see an Arab mm. state, even if it means that the present leadership has to retire and they find younger, m- more capable uh, leadership to to finally create the state in the West Bank and in Gaza. But um, like 
to be honest, um, Jerusalem has been a place where Muslim, Christian, and Jews have lived together for a long, long time. And I hope I can see this once again. But now about the current situation which we have seen between the Arabs and, uh, let's say, the designers. Do you think even the two, if there's a two, if there have, if there will be even two states, that they will still live in peace? Well, I I know it's hard to imagine now, mm. but if you, uh, you know, if you talk to your parents or grandparents, uh, if they were in Europe, if you could imagine the hatred between Germany, the mm. Germans, and the rest of Europe, or the Japanese and the rest of uh, China, there was terrible hatred at the end of the 1940s. And yet, you know, Germany now is, um, you know, part of Europe. Um, I think, there, you know, there are still some older people who remember the horrors of the war, mm -hmm. who, you know, don't want to have anything to do, you know, with Germans or with Japanese. I sometimes hear that. But it is possible to overcome um, these kind of hatreds and live side by side. And as you said, you know, until 1948, uh, Muslims, Christians, and Jews mm. lived very, very reasonably in all of the Arab world, in all of the Muslim world. Uh, Christians and Jews were always tolerated. They were protected people, mm. you know. Mm. So I think it is possible, but I think the extremism of um, the Zionism has made this very difficult. But then Zionism is a political movement. Um, and I think that there, there, there has to be a way forward because... Um, Palestinians are going to resist being forced to leave their lands, as you know, the mm. Samud is very important. So as some, there has to be in a way of living together um, in the future. It's hard to imagine now with this kind of destruction happening on a daily basis, but um, that has to be the future. I mean, hopefully, the, uh, hopefully we will see this future because this is what we everyone is looking for. Um, but you said like um, there has been a huge destruction as well. People have been displaced now. Um, what are these people going through who have been displaced? Because it's not easy. It's not easy to leave your house or to losing your house and then just finding shelter. I mean, as I said, I was just trying to be in the mind of these people who have been displaced. What are they going through? Okay, but you know, you have to also remember that the, that the Palestinians of, uh, in Gaza are particularly resilient. Mm. 80% of mm. the population of Gaza are refugees from the rest of Palestine. So only 20% of the population of Gaza have not been displaced in the past. This 80%, so you have really a large number of refugee camps in Gaza and um, people who have experienced a displacement once. Also, since uh, the unilateral withdrawal of Israel from Gaza in 2005, you have had constant battles between Israel and Hamas. And these have not all been started by Hamas. Many of them have been started by the Israeli uh, Defense Force themselves. And they have, um, they have come in, as they call it, They've called it mowing the lawn. When they felt that Hamas was getting too strong, mm. they would come in and um, uh, and not just fight the Hamas, but also destroy buildings, um, uh, destroy schools, destroy uh, even um, hospitals, etc. So they have been doing that for the last 20 years. And the Gazans have been rebuilding each time with very generous aid money, uh, generally from the from the European Union. So they have almost become used to this constant rebuilding after
extra battle. I'm not saying that it makes it easier, but I'm saying that um, with all this suffering, they can rebuild. However, this time, I would say Israel has gone a little bit too far, and that's why the International Court of Justice is looking into the allegations of genocide, because this time, although Gaza has been under a, a, a total, um, what should I say, siege since mm. 20, uh, 20, since 2006, so it's been, um, there's been uh, no access by air, no access by sea, and only two points of access controlled, one by Israel and the other controlled by, by Egypt. This time, of course, they've cut off water, They've cut off electricity. They've prevented food from entering. They've prevented medicine from entering. Uh, this is a total medieval warfare that has been uh, imposed upon Gaza. This is the, the genocide that the International mm. Court of Justice is examining. And this is what is so difficult. It is not just the displacement, because, of course, people... Uh, you know, when they lose their house, they go and they try and find uh, a relative who they can stay with. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes they've moved further. Uh, then they try to find some kind of shelter out in the open, which is what a lot of people are doing. But it's the the complete siege, you know, to try to starve the people that um, it seems Israel has imposed by so seriously limiting the ability of aid to get in that... Um, I think is the most difficult to cope with. Imagine people, people, you know, children sometimes uh, standing in line for hours mm-hmm. and hours just mm-hmm. to get a loaf of bread or not being able to find water, going and drinking seawater because there's nothing else. This is really, this is a barbaric. It's really inhumane. But people are doing it because of the will to survive. But um, is this not like a war crime committed by Israel? Why are they not being asked for that? I beg your pardon? They will be. I mean, the, there's the, the case is being built um, mm-hmm. uh, of, of uh, the way in which the Geneva Conventions are mm-hmm. being disrespected and the war crimes, and now we've got this um, also the the the, the, um, the International Criminal Court uh, now studying uh, what they think uh, uh, looks very much like um, genocide. They've given Israel instructions on what it should do, but interestingly enough, as you know, the the day that ruling was made, of course, the, the Israeli uh, released um, their allegations that uh, UNRWA, which is the United Nations mm-hmm. agency mm-hmm. providing aid to Palestinians, was involved in the actual uh, Hamas attack of October 7th. We haven't seen uh, the, the empirical evidence, but of course that has taken the headlines so that... Um, uh, the world is not recognizing the seriousness of the uh, recommendations that have emerged from the International Court of Justice. And why is this so? Why is they talking about? Why are they talking not about the war crimes which are committed by Israel, like the in West Bank? There have been assassination in the hospital, three assassination, and then in the northern part of Gaza, they found bodies, dead bodies, who have been shot dead. Why is the media not covering this? Well, first of all, there's very the media in uh, the media in Gaza is very limited. But secondly, you have to recognize the politics of this. You know, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, um, probably Germany, are very upset about what is coming forward as the, the provisional reports from the International Court of Justice. So mm. <laughs> they're they're quite 
you know, they're quite willing to see that that is sort of hidden. And what we're going to look at is UNRWA. I mean, can you imagine that um, um, funding to UNRWA is going to be suspended because of allegations mm-hmm. of of 10 to 12 um, uh, Palestinians' involvement in the attack in Hamas. It's a little bit like funding to the NHS being suspended because this nurse Letby uh, put, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. killed nine infants. The, it, the proportionality is it's astonishing, especially considering that UNRWA immediately... Um, uh, fired these people even before the evidence was examined mm. in order not to have uh, any um, uh, possible um, international repercussions from, from these reports. But um, th- this is also the politics of the situation. I mean, you can't get away from that. Yeah, it's, that's true. Um, Professor Don Chetty, um was amazing listening to you um Really, I uh, really enjoyed the interview as well, and I just can't wait to have you again on the breakfast show. But meanwhile, I wish you all the best for the future, and hopefully one day we can have you again on the breakfast show. Thank you for joining. Okay, well, thank you for calling. Thank you. You listen. You just listened to Don, uh, Professor Don Chetty, and it was interesting what she just said about the uh, replacement of uh, or displacement of Palestinian people and what impact it had. had. But she kind of gave hope as well that maybe in the future we will see, hopefully, a two-state. Two, uh, two states in the Middle East uh, and that um, the Gazan, that they are resilient, that they can build up uh, their own society again after that huge destruction which they are just facing right now. Um, the listeners, um, we see we see so much uh, sadness, so much tragedy in um, if it comes about Gaza. Uh, and especially now that uh, the, uh, the UNRWA has been accused that few members of them have been part of the th- uh, terrorist attack on the 7th of October uh, and that they have been fired but p- nations have stopped funding them as well which is so important for the people in Gaza as well but not even that um, e- even like um, uh, when the aid was coming into the Gaza they were stopped by the uh, uh, Israeli settlers which is so strange that um, these things you will only see in the social media but the media itself will not cover this um, but I just want to say highlight one point because I'm also going to discuss it from the Islamic perspective Islam has always said that um, y- that you should be s- steadfast in the cause of Allah bearing witness and equity you know Allah says or oh, you believe be steadfast in the cause of Allah bearing witness and equity and not, not people's enmity inside you to act otherwise than with justice be always just as is near to righteousness and fear Allah surely Allah is aware of what you do so you see that dear listeners that Allah Ta'ala God the Almighty has spoken about justice and in the Holy Quran we see many times that God spoke about justice and about different things as well especially about this as well when two parties are fighting against each other if the enemy even this universe enemy is doing injustice to you, you should always do justice to these people. You should always remember that God has thought of that and Islam has highlighted that point as well. You should always do justice, but this is what we don't see in today's day and age, unfortunately, especially in in, um, in the war of Gaza. um, We don't see any kind of this. And um, His Holiness... He said the rate at which the state of war is escalating and how the Israeli government and other major global powers are adopting certain policies, it's appearing that a world war is start staring us in the face. 
Now, even some leaders of Muslim countries have been begun to openly state, as have Russia and China, as and so too Western analysts have been have begun to write and proclaim that the scope of this war seems to be expanding. If wise policies, if wise policies are not immediately adopted, the world will face devastation. All of this is being reported in the media, and the state of uh, state of affairs is in front of all. I mean, it is so frustrating. Uh, this Holyness has spoken about this many, many times as well. Uh, he, over the last 20 hour, years, he told and warned to people that if they follow this path, if they keep on following this path, we will see destruction. Uh, we will see an impossible third world war. Um, now, dear listeners, one other thing is that Islam is a religion who never took side. Islam is a religion teaching us that you shouldn't hate one. Uh, first of all, you shouldn't hate anyone. You know, this is very important. Because Islam teaches us justice. You can do only justice if you don't have hate for anyone. So to do so, <coughs> sorry for that, it is important that you should remove the hatred if you have for other people. Yes, Quran teaches us that we should hate the sins which are adopted or which are done by people, but you should not hate that people. Otherwise, you can't teach that people. Otherwise, you can't change that pe- person. So... To adopt justice, it is important that you remove all the hatred which you have for the people, and that then only then you can adopt to justice. And um, it is also uh, that um, in the Holy Quran that it, if you desire to punish the oppressor, then punish them to the extent to which you have been wronged. But if they show patience, then surely that is the best for those who are patient. <clears throat> that you see that Allah has never said to extend the punishment if they have done something wrong and uh, but the best thing is that uh, if you show patience yes then you should do so as well this is much more beloved in the eyes of Allah the listeners um, we will go now to our next guest uh, which is Yusuf Aftab who is the Humanity First UK Director for Disaster Relief and Fundraising and he has just recently visited Gaza Yusuf Aftab Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh good morning and welcome to the breakfast show Hey, good morning, Waalaikumsalam. You have been in Gaza. Uh, you have seen uh, the crisis in Gaza. How would you d- describe the crisis? Like, do you think it is still possible for people to live in Gaza after this war comes to an end? Well, I suppose it's a very difficult situation. Obviously, within any protracted crisis that goes on, and, and then when we look at it from a humanitarian perspective, as people are being displaced and and people within Gaza, in terms of the Palestinians themselves, have been, uh, you've got to understand, internally displaced uh, on multiple occasions. So now from from the north, they're moving to the south, which is predominantly from the middle area of Khan Yunus into Rafa City. Rafa City is a very small place in terms of housing a few hundred thousand people, and it's now overpopulated and congested with um, um, one to two million people now, so it becomes very difficult now. When, when we're speaking to people and we, we saw the lived examples of people um, within Gaza itself, they, they want to stay in their homeland. They don't want to move, even though um, it's been desecrated, decimated at the north side of um, Gaza itself, where Gaza City, etc., and so forth is. Um, they want to go back, um, and even if they have to stay in tents. It's a very difficult situation. Maybe those that are uh, younger now and, and want to make something of their life. Mm. Um, you know, some of them were saying that uh, you know uh, they've seen a lot of um, 
uh, crises and wars now and, and they probably want to get out but getting out also becomes very difficult because you have to have the um, resources to be able to do that and you, you're talking about young people who have dreams but I've always heard Gaza is a place where you don't have any perspective where you don't have any plans for the future when you first stepped in Gaza what was the atmosphere you felt first and um, the, the people are very resilient to be honest with you they're, they're very tough resilient um, there was no wailing crying the women were very dignified the children were you know getting on with their business and families is uh, you know families together looking after each other even though it's substandard or worse than substandard in terms of living um they're, they're in you know shelters that are probably impromptu inappropriate not not the best in terms of in regards to how you know based on the un specification you know people have got tarpaulin clothes and and so forth that they've just erected their their tents there in any part of the settlements that, that that have been set up so um like i said you know very strong resilient people if it was to happen you know to a country like here um would would we see the same level of resilience i doubt it um so you know they they're very strong and dignified in terms of what they're doing and uh, um Uh, because you have been there and it's very good to know that someone has been there and someone knows the, the experiences from the can speak from his experiences um in terms of medical care and receiving the rice facilities what are the conditions of the Palestinians over there so you have heard the news and, and 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 in terms of what we've seen is that a lot of the hospitals within the north uh, they 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 you know not operatable in terms of what's happening there's a the infrastructure has been destroyed um you know recent hospitals even on nasrin uh, um uh, and you've heard of all shakan so so far hospitals still operate to a certain degree but don't have the medicines don't have the staff don't have the resources to be able to do it very very difficult circumstances to be able to do anything and provide provisions of medical care um the the ones now that are sort of more operational are in the the south side the qatari Uh, run uh, an Emirati uh, run hospital there, some health centers, but it's just not enough. The provisions are not enough for what is needed for a population that is displaced and, and normal requirements that you would expect of providing health and support to the most vulnerable groups, which are children, women, pregnant, you know, obviously there's pregnant women still needing care, um, children uh, that were on, uh, uh, in ICU units and incubators and so forth, and you've heard of the plight of them, and then your standard chronic care that that is there in in terms of needed from a long uh, period of a protracted crisis you know mental health issues uh chronic issues like hypertension diabetes these type of thing and then you've got the acute phase which is occurring now respiratory conditions um skin conditions um you know things like uh, communicable disease like hepatitis a cholera diarrhea that's occurring because the sanitation sewage system is so bad there and now with the winter weather it's just uh, magnifying things even from a health perspective of impacting stuff mm. and uh, people like uh, spoken especially about the war we see in Gaza that they have never seen such destruction before i mean you from your experience what effect do you usually see in war torn countries and on displaced people so uh, you know these, these things when when crisis occurs these things happen you know we look out from a very humanitarian perspective mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. as any uh, as every ngo that's operating and and providing support there you're trying to work within difficult circumstances of multitude of challenges um and um you know challenges challenges in terms of access to, of people to access 
uh, access of uh, equipment, supplies, etc. So these are all challenges that you're having to deal with real life. Those people living there are doing it on a daily basis. You know, you can hear the bombardment and so forth. So it becomes very, very difficult in terms of um, how to be able to get things done. Yes, there is destruction. There's a huge amount. It'll take years in terms of rebuilding the infrastructure um, and getting things back to some type of normality. But you've got to remember, outside of a crisis, the impact that it has on people, families, uh, mental health, their lives, um, education. It's, you know, it's a huge amount uh, that you have to deal with. And and I've seen this obviously other areas, but I've been to you know Turkey, Turkey and Syria, Iraq and so forth, and and Nepal. Um, you know uh, these type of things take a long time um, for societies to come back together and, and the support that's required. And, and and this is where the support is needed, not only from the complete humanitarian organisations, but from governments and so forth to be able to provide a, a steady state there. And uh, it's actually interesting that um, you, as someone who, who goes to serve humanity, who wants to serve humanity, in regards of that, what well, I mean, Islam says what that you should only help the uh, oppressed one, or, or, or should you also help the oppressor? So look, uh, our our purpose of a, of an NGO, and and if you look at it from an Islamic perspective as well, you have a you have a dual role, right? If you just look at it from a faith perspective, mm. to be able to help everybody, you also have to advocate and advise the oppressors and those that have been oppressed to support their needs and requirements. So there's a dual thing, but from a purely humanitarian perspective, when we're going there, you know, we we look at four core principles: humanity. Uh, we work. We work on the basis of neutrality. We're impartial and we're independent to any political uh, things that are going on. We're we're there to serve the people and provide that provision that is needed. So we have a job to assist, facilitate, um, support, and help those that are in need. And we also have a job of advocacy, advocating what is needed from a humanitarian perspective, why those needs are required, and, and that is to uh, the, the rest of the world alongside other NGOs and uh, and ensure that governments realise uh, the plight and uh, difficult situations that uh, people are under. I understand. Um, Yusuf, I mean, there are so many questions I would love uh, to ask you, but unfortunately we're reaching the hour which means that we have to wrap it up uh, but it was lovely speaking to you hopefully you know um, we see an end of this crisis overall in the world and uh, uh, hopefully that um, you can say that I'm now unemployed because there are no wars anymore um, no of, of course I don't want you to be unemployed but anyhow uh, of Tab, thank you for joining and I wish you all the best for the future thank you thank you for having me Assalamualaikum And uh, dear listeners, Yusuf Aftab said one thing that, uh, of course, we provide for everyone. Uh, from the Islamic perspective, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he has said that you should help the oppressed, but also the oppressor. Now, of course, uh, the companions were confused and they asked, you can help the, that person who's oppressed, but how would you help the oppressor? By telling him to stop doing these things. Uh, and uh, even in the Holy Quran, chapter 49, verse 10, God said, And if two parties of believers fight against each other, make peace between them. Then if after that one of them transgresses against the other, fight the party that transgresses until it returns to the command of Allah. Then if it returns, make peace between them with equity and act justly. Really, Allah loves the just. He again, God spoke 
it's about justice. Justice is something which we need in this day and age, something which we haven't seen for a long time. It is true that we can say that we live in an unjust world and right now we should fight for justice as well. Only then we, I think we can make a huge step towards peace as well. Um, His Holiness, may Allah be helper, the listeners have spoken about this many, many times as well. He said, we must focus a great deal on prayers. We should strive to end injustices within our own circles along with prayers. We should pray for the oppressed Muslims and that Muslim governments are able to come up with a comprehensive and lasting plan. May Allah um, listen to the words of uh, His Holiness and may Allah open the hearts of the Muslim um, leaders as well and that they come really with a plan which could lead to world peace dear listeners um we are coming to the end of the show um as i said we have we are celebrating the world hijab day today and uh, there's still a poll going on let us know the reason behind you wearing a hijab uh, is it because of piety to please god is it because to show muslim identity is it because of modesty or because it was required by muslim family members let us know you answer and uh, if you want to uh, if you want that your answer should be read out then you, you can do so because at 4 p.m. today we will have the drive time show where they will discuss about World Hijab Day as well and because uh, and why they believe in female empowerment so if you want to stay tuned with the voice of some radio and if you want to learn more about the hijab then you can do so as I said today at 4 o'clock the drive time show will speak about that as well um, or if you want to uh, listen to another episode of The Breakfast Show, you can do so again. I mean, every morning from Monday to Friday, from 7 to 9, we will hear for you. We will speak about different topics from the Islamic perspective as well. Um, the listeners, I'm very grateful. I'm uh, really, really are very grateful that you turned in today as well and that you listened to today's shows as well. We had great guests today. We talked about the hijab and we talked about the war in Gaza and uh, about why it is important to have peace and what Islam basically tells us how to create peace in the society as well. Dear listeners, um, again, thank you for joining. Thank you for listening as well. Uh, and also, if you did enjoy the show, you can listen to the show again on SoundCloud. And um, or as I said, you can, if you want to learn more about Islam, just stay tuned with the Voice of Islam Radio. I also want to say thank you to Dania, Sabia, to Tayeba or producers of today's shows to Sabah Mahmood Mala Mahmood for researching the different references from the Islamic perspective and to our technical guys as well uh, dear listeners tomorrow we will be back with these two topics World Interface Harmony Week and our prayers our hope in the light of Israeli aggression in Gaza dear listeners have a blessed day ahead have a blessed weekend ahead as well may the peace and blessing of Allah be with you all